Hey everyone, my name is Randall Heyer and I'm the worship arts pastor here at Cochrane Alliance Church. We are so glad that you've come to check out the latest sermon and we pray that you are encouraged, challenged, and ultimately that you are drawn closer to Jesus. Enjoy. Um, let's, uh, let's pray together this morning before the message. Heavenly Father, we thank you that in your presence we can find peace. We thank you that you comfort troubled hearts, that you encourage us, that you fill us by your spirit um, with your love. And I pray today um, that we would have a sense of your heart for those who have wandered from you that we would have a heart for those who have made decisions in life that have led them into maybe dark places. And as we look at the, the ministry of Jesus to these people, I pray that our hearts would, would be inspired by the ministry of Jesus to the people who are found in, in dark and desolate places. And I pray that we would understand our call to be the light of the world and a people who explain the hope and the peace that is found through you, Jesus. And I pray this in your name. Amen. So I want to start today by just asking you a question. How has following Jesus changed your life? Just think about it. If you do follow Jesus, just look back at the trajectory of your life and, and answer that question to yourself. How has following Jesus changed your life. And if you're here today and you're not yet following Jesus, you're not sure what you think about Jesus, let me ask you this question. How do you think following Jesus could change your life? Or what would you want your life to look like if you were to follow Jesus? Put your whole faith and trust in, in Jesus. What would that look like for you? What does it look like for you? And what I want for those of us who do follow Jesus today to focus on is the present hope that is found in Jesus. You know, a lot of times we, we get sort of fixated and, and somewhat rightly on the promise of the eternal life. You know, through Jesus we have a life after this life. Our death is not the end, it is the beginning of eternal life with God. And that's absolutely true. And it's absolutely our greatest hope. The Apostle Paul says, if our hope um, in Christ is only for this life, then we're more to be pitied in anyone, than anyone in the world. So eternal life is our great hope. Yet we have to acknowledge there is more to the Christian life than just a future hope. We also have a present hope. We, we become a new creation right now. So how has following Jesus changed your life in this life? It's not just about the future eternal hope, but how has following Jesus changed the course of your life? I mean, I can give you a really brief answer for myself that my answer is once I lived under a crushing load of guilt and shame, now I'm free, free from guilt, free from shame, and free to continue to grow in my knowledge of God's grace and love towards me that I can then extend towards other, others. But scripture tells us that when we put our faith in Jesus, we become born again. And that's not about the future eternal hope, it's about right here, right now. We become a new creation in Christ, and I think that's the best way to describe it. The Apostle Paul says it in 2 Corinthians 5.17, he says, anyone who belongs to Christ has become a new person. The old life is gone, a new life has begun. See, this is really the gospel message, is that you become a new creation right now. 
that you become born again right now. And it means, what does it mean that a new life has begun? It means that the old habits and passions and desires and guilt and sin and shame and burdens are taken from you. And those old dead things are then replaced by new things, things that are full of life and full of the glory of God. And people who are born again, who are made a new creation, they see the world differently. They have a new feeling towards people, a new kind of love for all people. And the destructive things that we once loved, we now detest. The sin we once held on to, we, we now desire to put away forever. And some of you will know what I'm talking about. You've experienced this, this awakening, this, my life was going in this direction. Jesus found me. He bought me. I accepted him, and now I'm going in this direction. And all those things that used to cause destruction in my life, all those things that, that caused pain and harm to me and to others, I desire to put those away because following Jesus, following Jesus is the way I need to go. It's the, it's the way we should go. And so you understand that, that Jesus has made you a new creation. You can go, before I was, I was a wreck, I was a mess. Now, I'm not perfect, but I'm free. And that's, that's the hope of following Jesus because God delights in making things new. He delights in setting things right. Sometimes people have the idea that what God really likes to do is point the finger at people and condemn them and shame them, but that's not what our God likes to do. Our God likes to make things new. He likes to, to take things that are, that are hurt and broken and restore them. He takes broken and hurting and dying people and he restores them to life. God says this in scripture. He says, forget the former things. Do not dwell on the past. See, I am doing a new thing. Now it springs up. Do you not perceive it? That's what I think a lot of people need. They, they, they find they're not satisfied in what life is giving them. They're not satisfied in the life they're making for themselves and they, they're feeling broken or disenchanted or, or disillusioned. And our God wants to come in and say, I'm, I'm, I can make you new, a new creation. Abundant life is for today. We see a really clear example of what this new creation looks like in the life of a man named Zacchaeus. This meeting between Jesus and Zacchaeus shows us a really clear picture of, of grace and forgiveness and new life. So let's just read the story of Zacchaeus. Jesus entered Jericho and was passing through. There was a man named Zacchaeus who was a chief tax collector and he was rich. He was trying to see who Jesus was, but he, he was not able to because of the crowd since he was a short man. So running ahead, he climbed up a sycamore tree to see Jesus since he was about to pass that way. When Jesus came to the place, he looked up and said to him, Zacchaeus, hurry and come down because today it is necessary for me to stay at your house. So he quickly came down and welcomed him joyfully. All who saw it began to complain, he's gone to stay with a sinful man. But Zacchaeus stood there and said to the Lord, Look, I'll give half my possessions to the poor Lord. And if I have extorted anything from anyone, I'll pay back four times as much. Today salvation has come to this house, Jesus told him. Because he, because he too is a son of Abraham. For the son of man has come to seek and save the lost. So let's talk about this encounter that Zacchaeus has with Jesus. Let's start here. Some sins and sinners are very visible to us, but they don't really affect us. 
right? You can see someone, maybe you're on the C train and, and you see someone who's definitely in the throes of a drug addiction or something's gone wrong. I've seen that a few times. People are having a really bad reaction to whatever drug they're on and, and you can feel really bad for that person, but it doesn't really affect you. Or you can see a person that you know kind of trying to seek love in a series of really brief sexual relationships and you kind of think to yourself, they're really hurting themselves. I feel really bad for them, but their sin doesn't really directly affect you. But other times, someone else's sin directly involves you. If someone drives drunk and kills someone you know, their sin has directly affected you. Or if someone breaks into your house and steals from you, their sin affects you personally. So when people are grumbling in our text, you saw that when Jesus said, hey, Zacchaeus, it's necessary that I come to your house today, you saw that the whole crowd, the whole town grumbled. They said, he's gone to the house of a sinner. Now, why would they do that? It's not just because Zacchaeus is a sinner whose sin is visible but doesn't affect them. The reason they're kind of upset about this, they're actually quite angry that Jesus would go to Zacchaeus' house, is because Zacchaeus' sin directly hurt people in his community. Because Zacchaeus, it says, was a tax collector. Now, what we have to understand about tax collectors in that day is that a tax collector in that area, the way the Roman system had set it up, is that a tax collector was basically a thief. You were essentially stealing money from people. So here's what you need to understand about tax collectors in the time of Jesus to understand why the people are so mad that Jesus would go to Zacchaeus' house. So number one, the Jews had to pay taxes to a foreign government because the Romans were ruling over the Jews, and so the Jews had to pay taxes to the Roman government. Now, none of us like to pay taxes, right? I mean, I don't mind. It's okay, because I understand. So here's the thing. When it comes to taxes, we know that at least some of our tax money goes to build roads and schools and hospitals and things that we use. So as much as we maybe complain about the rate of taxes or taxes and, and how the money's used, we do know that at least it's being, some of it is being spent in our community to better our communities. But in the Roman world, you would pay tax and it would just go to Rome. It might go to build a Colosseum. It might go to build the emperor's palace. It might go to buy lions to, to fight in the gladiator fights, but what it wouldn't do is come back to your community. So when you paid that money to an occupying army, it was gone, out of your community. So you wouldn't like that. So it's kind of like if we paid taxes to the United States government, and the United States government took that money and built roads down in the U.S., but nothing here, would you, you would definitely will not want to pay taxes then. But you had to. Now, the second thing is, is understanding tax collectors, that tax collectors got wealthy at the expense of others. So here's how the tax collection system worked in that day. Let's, let's use a hypothetical example. So let's say we've got a Jewish man named Amos. He's a potter. So we'll call him Amos the potter. Now, as far as the Roman government is concerned, Amos, let's say, owes $500 to the Roman government. Now, what the tax collector would do is the tax collector would come and say, Amos, you owe $700. Or, Amos only owes $500. The tax collector would say, you owe 700. And what, and Amos has to pay that $700. Now, Amos knows he's being overcharged by the tax collector, but he might not know by how much. But he knows that the tax collector is taking a portion of that money for himself. And there's nothing he can do about pay because if he doesn't pay, the tax collector will get the Roman soldiers and make you pay. But he knows that this tax collector is overcharging him. So every time he sees the tax collector, he goes, that's the guy who has my money. He's taking my money. The other thing you should realize is that tax collectors were not 
paid wages by the Romans. In fact, it was the other way around. Sometimes tax collectors would have to pay the Roman governors for the privilege of being a tax collector because it could be so lucrative. Depending on how hard-hearted you were, depending on how willing you were to strong-arm your fellow community members, you could get very wealthy. Let's say the guy owes $200 and you charge him 1000 You could make a pretty good profit if you're willing to be cutthroat and ruthless. So they actually paid the Roman government for the privilege of ripping off their fellow men. Now, I personally don't have anything against Zacchaeus. His sin doesn't affect me. But if I lived in Palestine with Zacchaeus at the time he lived there, I would go, that guy's a bad guy. He's stealing our money. He's giving it to Rome. But he's also pocketing my money for himself. So I'd be pretty angry with him. So the words that we read in the text, he was a chief tax collector and he was wealthy, that's loaded with meaning for a citizen of Jericho in Zacchaeus' day. Why is Zacchaeus wealthy? Because he steals from us. That's why he's wealthy. He takes our money. So people are not happy with Zacchaeus. Zacchaeus is not a well-liked man. Do you ever notice when you read in Scripture that it says Jesus was with tax collectors and other sinners, tax collectors and other sinners? You're like, why are they always singling out tax collectors? It's because of this. Because tax collectors were seen as traitors and thieves, like the lowest of the low. And Zacchaeus wasn't just a run-of-the-mill tax collector. It says he was the chief tax collector. He supervised other tax collectors, probably teaching them some of the tricks of the trade. So if tax collectors were hated, imagine how hated a chief tax collector was. So now you can understand why the people would be so grumbly, because it says they grumbled that Jesus was going to the house of his sinner. That's why they didn't like it. They go, how could Jesus go and spend time with this man? Why would Jesus, the holy rabbi, the teacher of scriptural truth, go and spend time with a man who is a robber, a thief, and a traitor to his people? But, and so what the people saw is they said Zacchaeus is a sinner. I mean, that was, that's the only label they had for him. I mean, besides traitor and probably a few other bad names. But Zacchaeus isn't just a sinner. He's also a seeker, right? That's obvious, right? He can't see through the crowd. He desperately wants to see Jesus. He runs ahead. He climbs up a tree. He's seeking out Jesus. And, and Zacchaeus isn't the only seeker in the story. There's another seeker in the story. And who is this other seeker? It's Jesus. Verses 9 and 10 in this scripture passage, I think, are some of the most powerful verses in the Gospel of Luke. Jesus says... Salvation has come to this home today. For this man has shown himself to be a true son of Abraham. Let me just pause right there. Why would Jesus call him a true son of Abraham? It's because everyone in his community said he's a traitor. He's not a true son of Abraham because no true son of Abraham, no good Jew, would steal from his fellow Jews to give to the Roman government. So when Jesus says he's a true son of Abraham, he is changing this man's identity and the narrative of his life, and he's saying this man who you call a traitor is a true son of Abraham. That's a powerful statement for Jesus to make. And then he says this, which I think is the most powerful, for the son of man, Jesus is referring to himself, came to seek and save those who are lost. The son of man came to seek and save those who are lost. So Zacchaeus, who was lost, is now found. Zacchaeus sought out Jesus, but Jesus always sought out people like Zacchaeus. Jesus came to save those who are lost and to seek them out. 
Jesus came for people who knew that they were lost and needed rescue, people like Zacchaeus. You see how Zacchaeus so quickly changes the way he wants to live his life. And you know, Zacchaeus has been looking for an opportunity to change his life. He just didn't know how. Without Jesus coming into the picture, Zacchaeus would have been trapped in the life he was living. How do you get out of this? Everyone in your community hates you. Nobody is going to embrace you. If you quit doing the tax collecting, how are you going to make a living? And the only one who can set Zacchaeus free from this kind of trap that he's built for himself is Jesus. Because the mission of Jesus is to seek and save the lost. And can I tell you this, that the mission of Jesus to seek and save the lost continues today through his followers. Because the very presence of God dwells within us. We are temples of the Holy Spirit. We are a royal priesthood. We are ambassadors of Christ. We are the light of the world. And we are included in the commission to go and make disciples of all nations. So if Jesus came to seek and save the lost, those who claim to follow Jesus are to seek and save the lost. Empowered by the Spirit. Led by the Spirit. In obedience to Jesus. I read a book a few years ago about a prison chaplain in Washington State named Chris Hoke. And I was really inspired by this book. Chris Hoke was a prison chaplain, but he, was, he went above and beyond the duties of a prison chaplain because he understood that Jesus was the hope and the light of the world. And Chris primarily worked with gang members, and eventually different gang members up in the Pacific Northwest started to call him their pastor. Like, oh, that's Pastor Chris. He's our pastor. Now, how did that all start? It started one night very early on in his career as a prison chaplain, when he was, he was allowed into a room to pray with a recently arrested gang member. He was actually the leader of a gang in the area. And after a profound moving of God in the heart of this gang leader, the gang leader said to Chris, hey, you have got to go and tell my friends what you just told me. I need you to go to my friend's house and I need you to pray with him like you prayed with me. They always party on Friday nights at this garage. And he gave Chris the address. Chris said it felt like God was moving. It felt like the Spirit was leading. So I went. So at 1 a.m., Chris showed up at this dilapidated garage filled with gang members. And he knocked on the door, and the gang members were like, what are you doing, and who are you, and why are you here? And marijuana smoke was pouring out of the garage, and some of the gang members were passed out on the floor, and they are having a pretty, pretty crazy party. And Chris said, hey, your buddy who was arrested tonight said, I needed to come here and pray with you. And they said, oh, all right, then come on in. Come on in. So he goes in, and, and they kind of turn the music down, and everyone gathers around, and Chris just prayed over them. And it was out of that moment that some of these gang members expressed, you know, down the road, not right in that night, but down the road in the months and even in the years to come, they would express how, the gang was not their preferred choice in life, but it felt like the only choice in life. And that they were deeply ashamed of the things that they did and, and the things that they felt they had to do, but they didn't know how to stop. They didn't see a way out of this life until Chris came and said, hey, I, I think I can help you with this. And I think if you give your, your heart over to Jesus, Jesus will find a way for you to get out of this life and set you free. And some of these guys, I mean, all of these guys were drug dealers, and most of them were very violent men, but Jesus made them new. 
His book is called Wanted. I love it. It's, it's such an inspirational book to me. But obviously not all of us are going to be called to go to a hot box garage full of gang members. Some of us might be. I had a really great experience. Anyways, <laughs> um, talking to people who uh, grew their own marijuana, and it was a great conversation. Anyways, I'm not saying we need to do exactly what Chris Hoke does. But I want us to understand what our mission is. Jesus, said to Zacche- Jesus said to Zacchaeus, I need to go to your house today. That's the same as me saying, I need to go to a garage full of drunken, stoned gang members. Everyone would be like, what? Why, why, you need to go there? Why do you need to go there? Why did Jesus need to go to Zacchaeus' home? Because the light of the world needed to shine in the darkness. That's our job. Our mission is to make sure that the light of Jesus is brought into the darkest places. And if we're not called to personally go and do those things, then we are certainly called to pray for those who do or pray that God would raise up people who are willing to go into some of these dark places to bring the light of Jesus and the message of the gospel to those people in those places. And so I think there kind of needs to be a fundamental shift in our thinking where we don't view things like this with suspicion. You know, I know there's some Christians who would say, How could a Christian be seen in such a terrible place? A garage filled with drunken gang members smoking weed? You shouldn't find yourself in that place. But I would actually say, yeah. If the Lord calls us there, we better go. And we need to start thinking how wonderful it is that the light of Christ is being brought into the darkest of places. Because remember what Jesus said, that he came to seek and to save the lost. Chris Hoke went out and sought the lost. The church needs to go out and seek the lost. Again, I don't mean going out and telling people how terrible they are. I mean going out and showing people that there's a different way to live life. That there is a a different way to live your life that is full of abundance. That is filled with peace and joy and freedom from sin and guilt and shame and burden. And so I think sometimes we kind of hesitate at these kind of things because we go, well, respectable people don't do that. But it's not about what's respectable or not. It's about the lost being found. It's about the light of Christ shining into the darkest places so the broken lives can be made new. You know, sometimes I think what the mindset becomes in the church is, is, you know, we have a really nice church building and we kind of think to ourselves, well, if people want Jesus, they can just come to church on a Sunday morning. I've been a pastor for nine and a half years. Do you know how often someone has wandered into a church building on a Sunday morning because they thought they might need Jesus? Once. One time in nine and a half years did someone say, we came because we thought maybe the church had answers for us. But I've spoken to dozens of people who say, I would never go into a church. Not because they hate Christians, but because they think they're so different from us that they go, I wouldn't, I would I've actually heard the phrase, like, God would strike me dead if I stepped into a church. They're kind of joking, but they're not totally joking. There's some sort of awareness going, I'm not like you people, and I don't think you would like me, and I don't think I'd be accepted. And so simply, the church building can be an obstacle to the gospel sometimes. So if our mindset is, oh, if you want Jesus, then come to church, I think you're not going to find a lot of success there. And actually, we don't see the early church doing that at all. We see them going out, going out, going out. Jesus leaves the 99 sheep to find the one that is lost. 
And I think that's a picture for us, that it's not about, okay, well, if you want Jesus, come into our church service where you don't know anyone, where everything seems kind of weird, it's unfamiliar, it's strange. Instead, we should be going out, talking about the hope that we've found in Christ. Maybe even establishing the church in a place where you wouldn't normally find a church. Let me tell you another story. This is from a few years ago. I was reading a newspaper article about a church plant that started in Guelph, Ontario, this church, it started out as a house church, but uh, because the pastors were doing a good job and, and kind of inspiring the people, it grew from a very small house church to about 35 people coming on on average. And they thought, you know, if we keep growing and, and even this number is pretty big, we better find a place where we can meet. I mean, they don't have any money to build a building or anything like that, but they were going to find a place, a cheap place to rent to have their house church. And the pastor and his wife were driving through the city, praying and, and asking the Lord, Lord, where could we meet? We don't have much money, but we, we feel like we can't meet in our home anymore. Like, how are we going to do this? And the, the wife said to her husband, well, why don't we do church in the manor? Now, you need to know what kind of place the manor is. The manor is a strip club, and it has a series of low-income apartments attached to it. At first, the, the husband thought his wife was joking, but she was kind of serious. And then the more they prayed about it and talked about it, they said, well, isn't that the most natural place for a church? Isn't that the, the place where the light needs to shine the brightest, is in a place of darkness? And so they actually met with the owner of the club, and the club owner kind of, they still don't know why he said yes. Even he doesn't know why he said yes. You can find an interview with him in, in the Walrus magazine. He doesn't even fully understand why he agreed to this, but he said, okay. So what they do is they launch their service on a Sunday afternoon when the club is normally closed. They cover up all the scandalous pictures with pictures of Jesus. They cover the pool table with a cloth and make it into a food table because they always eat together. The stage where the women perform is turned into a place for the worship team where they worship God. The pastor preaches. And do you know what that's a picture of? That's a picture of transformation. That's a picture of new creation. And after the church service, the church leaves behind food and flowers for the women who are going to come in later that night to perform. And they leave a card with an invite to make sure they come to Sunday, to church on Sunday. And then they do a ministry as well. A group of women from the church go and, and meet with the women backstage and, and pray with them and, and invite them to church and talk about Jesus with them. And one of the ministry leaders of that church wrote, For decades, the manor has been a place where the lives of men and women have been destroyed, but God is about taking back what the devil meant to ruin people with. This place where girls' freedoms are taken or lost will become a place of rescue and safety, a safe house where girls can get off the streets, not on them. What I love about this is it's a story of redemption and transformation. In the first eight months of, of operating out of, this church, out of this place, this church saw seven people come to faith and be baptized. People who either lived in the low-income apartments or women who worked at the club, they came to faith and were baptized and became regular attenders of the church. And it should be noted that these new believers are people who are often completely ignored by the church. It should be noted that the people who came to faith are people that often would never set foot in a church. They would not feel comfortable coming in to a church on a Sunday morning. So the church went to them. Because Jesus seeks and saves the lost. Jesus goes to the home of Zacchaeus. It's pretty much the equivalent of going into places like this. Now, certainly I know some people would say, listen, this is, this is pushing me too far. I, I don't think a church should meet in a strip club, but, but I disagree. 
You know, you can criticize them all the want, but all you want, but I'm reminded of something that happened to D.L. Moody, uh, the great preacher and evangelist D.L. Moody. One day, uh, Moody was criticized by a lady for his method of evangelism. She didn't like the way he spoke about the gospel. She didn't like how bold and brash he was in his proclamation. And so Moody said to her, well, I agree with you. I don't much like the way I evangelize either, so tell me, how do you do it? The woman said, I don't do it. And he said, well, then I like my way of doing it better than I like your way of not doing it. And that's sort of what I feel about a church like this, who has seen people come to faith and be baptized that most churches could only dream of having happen. And I go, I like their way of doing it than our way of not doing it. And so the crucial question that we need to ask when we talk about like where, where do we go and what do we do is, is we have to ask, are lives being transformed by the power of Jesus? And if lives are being transformed by the power of Jesus, then we praise the Lord. Then we say, thank you, Chris, for going into the hot box garage of gang members. Thank you, Manor Church, for meeting in a strip club where people who would never set foot in the doors of a church are meeting Jesus for the first time. And we just praise the Lord for, for the light coming into the darkness. Now, when I think about Zacchaeus, I think about a guy who had a very hard heart. You got to think about Zacchaeus. He's not a nice man. I know if you grew up in Sunday school, we we all heard the story of little Zacchaeus, right? The little little man who climbed a tree and looked at Jesus, and it's all nice and wonderful. And oh, little Zacchaeus looked at Jesus and, you know, all this stuff. Zacchaeus robbed his own people, using the Roman army as his enforcers, He's not a nice man. He's like the enforcer in the mob, right? Pay up or I break your legs. This is Zacchaeus. And he would do it because if people, you know, to establish yourself, maybe some people go, I don't think Zacchaeus, little Zacchaeus has it in him to take my money. Well, Zacchaeus probably did have it in him and he brings a Roman army in and he breaks your legs or whatever, arrests you, beats you up, gets you whipped, whatever. Zacchaeus isn't a nice man. He's got a hard heart. I mean, just think about, how, think about how hard of heart you have to be to sign up to be a tax collector and say, yep, I am willing to rob the people in my community for my own personal wealth. It's, a, it's not a nice dude. And so there's no doubt that the people where Zacchaeus lived had written Zacchaeus off, right? They grumble about Jesus going to his house because they're like, that guy? Of all the people in this village, you're going to go to that guy's house. Again, a real good lesson for us. Where should we be going to? I would count it probably then a great compliment if people said, why in the world would you go to that person's house? And I'd say, well, I have a hope that they probably need. That's where I'm going. What I think we see with Zacchaeus is that the people of his community had written Zacchaeus off. He's too greedy, he's too corrupt, he's too sinful, he's too bad of a man for any hope to be found there. And I think what we learn here is that we can't write people off because Jesus didn't write people off. Jesus went to them. Christianity Today magazine um, usually publishes a few testimonies in the last pages of their their magazine. And, you know, I've read some cool testimonies that really stand out to me. But there's there's a testimony in there that I I think relates to Zacchaeus. And I think it... I think it shows us how the light of Jesus can change even the hardest of hearts. And I want to share this story with you just as we, we come to our end here. The testimony is from Casey Diaz, who is a shot caller in prison. The shot callers kind of have an elevated rank in the gang world because they're the ones who determine who gets hurt or who gets killed. 
and who doesn't. They often handle the weapons and the ammunition for the gang. They're the ones who know where to hide it, where to stash it. And uh, Casey Diaz tells his story, and he says, I started down this path as a teenager in South Central Los Angeles. I was a gang member and a leader. I led the way when we invaded homes or broke into cars or robbed convenience stores. I stabbed rival gang members. But eventually, he says, the LAPD caught up with me, and I was sentenced to 13 years for second-degree murder, along with 52 counts of armed robbery, but I actually breathed a sigh of relief that those were the only charges that the police could pin on me. In prison, two gangs approached me and asked me to be their shot caller. So one of my responsibilities was to control and distribute the shanks, so that whenever a riot went off, I would get the shanks into the hands of the people who needed them, and I would know who to hurt or who to kill. He said, after about six months in that prison, I was transferred to New Folsom State Prison. And as soon as I arrived, a guard said, we know that you're a gangbanger. We know you're a shot caller. So we're putting you in solitary. You're not going into general pop. You're, you're just not. You're, you're out. Which meant he was shut up in an 8 by 10 windowless box with all the meals just slipped in through a slot in the steel door, being isolated constantly. He said sometimes when he was in there, he would hear about the guards calling out that a church service was starting. He would, you're always allowed out for church service. We said, I had, even though I was stuck in this isolated windowless box, I had no interest in church. He said, I knew next to nothing about Jesus except he was the guy who hung on all those crucifixes. But he said one time he was laying in his bed and he could listen to the voices outside and he heard an older woman just before the church service uh, announcement was made. An older woman said, is there someone in that cell? And the guard said, yes, ma'am, but you don't want to deal with Diaz. You're wasting your time to go deal with Diaz. Don't, don't bother talking to him. But she said, well, Jesus came for him too. And the older woman approached his cell, and he could just kind of see her legs through the meal slot. And she crouched down, and she said, young man, I'm going to pray for you, and there's something else I want you to know. Jesus is going to use you. That's a prophetic word, by the way. He said, I was completely sure she was crazy. Couldn't you see I was locked away in solitary confinement? I'm a bad guy. What was Jesus going to do with me? He said a year later, he was laying down in his cell, daydreaming, when he turned to the wall opposite of his bed, and on the wall, he saw this very strange image, and what he realized is it looked like a movie of his life. He could see himself as a young child, and then he saw, he saw incidents from his early days with the gang, and he was seeing everything in picture-perfect detail played out like a movie scene on his wall. And then the scene changed, and he saw a man carrying a cross. And as a man carried the cross, a crowd of angry people yelled at him and threw things at him. And when he arrived at the top of a hill, people nailed his hands to the cross, and he raised the cross so it stood between two other men. He said, what got me most when I was watching this thing, this vision that I was having, is that this man, when he was raised up on the cross, looked at me and said, Darwin, I'm doing this for you. He said, I shuddered because apart from the prison guards and my family, no one knew my real name was Darwin. Everyone called me Casey or Diaz. No one knew I was Darwin. He said, then I heard the sound of the breath leaving the man on the cross, and at that moment I knew he had died, and I started crying because I knew that somehow this was Almighty God, and I didn't understand really what he had done for me, but I knew I, I had to get on my knees, and I started confessing my sins. Lord, I'm sorry for stabbing so many people. Lori, I'm sorry I robbed so many families. And with every confession, I felt weight come off my shoulders, and when I finished confessing, I knew something had happened, so I asked to see a chaplain. And the chaplain explained to me that what had happened was that Jesus had saved me. What I'd experienced was salvation, repentance of sin, and forgiveness of sin. 
And the chaplain handed him a Bible and he started reading it and that started his journey of faith. And then it kind of goes really incredible from there. He got put into general population and he was the Jesus man telling everybody about Jesus. And he got beat up and all that kind of stuff. But when I read testimonies like this, I'm reminded that Jesus can break into the hardest of hearts. That no one is too far gone or too evil. When I was in Drumheller, we have the uh, federal penitentiary there. So sometimes I'd get invited to go in and speak down into the medium security and and then up into the minimum security. And, And these are the types of things you have to remember when you go to places like that, that no heart is too hard. And I just want to faithfully tell the story of Jesus. I want to faithfully tell about the hope that we have in Jesus. And so I'm just reminded that no heart is too hard, no location is too dark to withstand the power and the light of Jesus. Everything and everyone can be redeemed through the power of Jesus and preaching the hope that we have in Jesus. And this is really, we're going to come now to the end of, of Zacchaeus' story and, and kind of how, De, how Diaz you know, confessed his sins to God. A big part of becoming a new creation in Jesus is repentance. Remember what Zacchaeus said to Jesus. He said, I'll give half my wealth to the poor Lord. And if I've cheated people on their taxes, I will give them back four times as much. Talk about a change of heart. This is what repentance is. Because Zacchaeus had pursued wealth so vigorously that he would alienate himself from his people. He allowed himself to be hated and despised and called a sinner just to make money. Then he encounters Jesus and he knows what he has to do. That wealth which consumed me, I'm done with it. I'm giving it away. All the people I robbed and cheated, I'm paying them back four times as much as I took. That's repentance. That's what repentance is. It's saying, I was going down this road that was leading me to destruction. I'm done with that. And I'm going to go this way. And that's what Zacchaeus does. It's a 180 degree turn. It's it's not just, oh, I need forgiveness. But it's saying, not only do I need forgiveness, but I don't want to do this anymore. I want to go a different direction. And that's the power of Jesus to make people a new creation. The old life is gone and a new life has begun. That's why we preach not only believing in Jesus, but we preach repentance from sin. Because when we talk about salvation, we're talking about freedom from the sin that binds you and freedom from the guilt that weighs you down. And freedom comes through repentance. Repentance deals with that present hope we have in Jesus, the hope that our sin, the knowledge that our sin is forgiven and that what is broken in us can be restored so our hurts can be healed. See, sometimes people think that they're living in freedom, but what Scripture tells us is that we become slaves to our desires. And oftentimes you'll meet people that have gone down a certain road, of, they've made certain choices, and they realize at a point that they're kind of stuck there. They're slaves to the desires that rule them. And what they really want is some sort of power, some sort of way to break free from, from the desires that bind them so they can live the way they really want to live. And that's the spiritual power of Jesus. Not only to forgive sin, but to break the power of sin so that we can walk in freedom the way we always meant to, we were always meant to walk. And that's where joy is found. Joy is found in freedom from sin and shame and guilt. Joy is found in a transformed mind which seeks to do right, to follow the ways of Jesus. Joy is found in knowing we have a God who pursues us who seeks and saves the lost, who died for us even while we were still yet sinners because he so loved the world, he desired that none should perish. That's the good news. Let me, 
I'm just going to call the worship team up, and, and as they're coming up, I just want to ask you the same questions I asked you at first, but maybe as we've kind of gone through some of these testimonies and some of these stories, and, and I want to ask you this question because I think it's so important that we remember what Jesus has done for us so that we're ready to explain the hope that we have when people ask us. And so how has following Jesus transformed your life? What trajectory were you on before Jesus found you? And if you're not yet following Jesus, maybe you're here today because you want to be a new creation. Maybe you've come to the end of the life that you've been living and you go, I just don't know where else to go and so I'm in church today. Again, I said that doesn't often happen, but sometimes it does. So if you're here today or watching online and you're going, I, I want something new, then I can tell you Jesus is the one who makes you a new creation. And that's a spiritual thing that I can't fully explain scientifically, but I, I've felt it in my own life. I've heard it in other people's lives that when you decide to follow Jesus, he changes you. He forgives you. Your desires are different. And so we're going to sing worship together, just praising this God who, who is relentless in his pursuit of us. This God who doesn't let anything stop him from finding those who, who need to hear his message. Jesus took a lot of criticism for the people he hung out with, and he went there anyways. So let's worship this God who pursues us so much because he loves us so deeply. Join with us in worship this morning. <clears throat>